This morning we'll continue on and uh, and look forward to sharing a good bit of, of from the word uh, with you. This morning I want to start by asking you the question: uh, What does it mean to you when somebody says the phrase "Don't poke the bear"? Have you ever heard that phrase? Like, hey, easy, don't poke the bear. In your house, who is the bear? Lori, sure. We, I'm, well, we expect that. That's exactly right. If anybody knows Steve and Lori, sure, right? You've got somebody in your house who is the bear, no doubt. And sometimes it may be, I've seen very much a trending thing recently is moms wearing the mama bear shirt. You know what I mean? Like, and so it may be the mom in your house that's the bear. Uh, it may be the more uh, grizzly-esque dad uh, coming home from work or such that is kind of the, the bear. And if we're, if we're real honest, there are some of you kids that are the bear. Uh, there's one of those like, please don't mess with them. You know what I mean? Like this could go sideways in a hurry. Mom and dad are fine, but don't mess with the youngin, right? Because you just never know what's going to happen. Uh, sometimes you've done things in the past that are like, you're, you're provoking something. And you know when you do that, that there's a chance the outcome is going to be bad. How many of you have a, a very known, like you despise the flying insects that sting? Not very long ago, uh, I was actually a couple few years ago now. It's one of those stories that probably gets out of hand in how long I remember it was. Uh, Chad, how long have you guys been in your house? Yeah, it was not long after I got here. Um, we were with Chad and Megan checking out where they were planning on building uh, years ago. And while we were walking through the woods, um, I still think Megan Mitchell walked over and started stomping the yellow jacket nest. I don't know what happened. All I know is she and Carly got absolutely lit up. Of course, me and Chad, as noble men as we are, took off running through the woods going, what are you doing? Come on. You know, like We just left them. But there's that time like you get stung and they make me so ill. I do not like the yellow jackets. I do not like wasps. I do not like hornets. And when I find them, I start coming up with how am I going to eradicate the world of these things, you know? And when I come up with those ideas, the problem is I have to get close enough to get stung. So I know when I'm there, I'm running the risk. I may win, but I may suffer the consequences in the process, right? There's that thing where like you get close enough and you know they're going to come back and sting you. Well, in that scenario, the poking the bear, more times than not, when we look at Jesus... We see Jesus as the bear to be poked because he seems to have the answers and people seem to be kind of picking at him a little bit. They seem to be poking and prodding as we read through the New Testament. And I'll be honest with you that as I've read through this, like I started really calling that into question. Do you think Jesus is the bear or is Jesus the provocateur? I mean, think with me for a moment. Is he the one being poked? Or is he the one poking? If you read certain stories, even the story from this morning, we'll be back in Matthew 22 in a second. It's the story immediately following what we talked about last week. So just go to Matthew 22. We'll be beginning there in the middle sections of that. But when you think about what Jesus is doing, I mean, it's not necessarily that he is going places to try and, and, and he's being provoked. I mean, look at his story a little bit more in line. As a matter of fact, you've got your Bible open this morning. We'll be in Matthew 22, but you could go back as far as like Matthew 20 and especially during Matthew 21. I mean, think about Jesus's days preceding this Matthew 22 text. We'll be in Matthew 22 verse 15 in just a moment, okay? He rides into town as a king. 
But what does he ride into town? Into Jerusalem, what does he ride in? A donkey or the colt of a donkey. You have this, this man who is arriving likely through one of the lesser gates. We read about where he was praying. and He likely came through one of the, the lesser gates as we read in Matthew. It doesn't exactly name it in Matthew, but there's an expectation. It's one of those lesser gates that he's coming through. So it isn't all the fanfare of a normal king. As a matter of fact, I think you could make a very solid case. Jesus arrives kind of making fun of their system. You know what I mean? Like when kings arrive, it's all the big hoopla and all the things going on. And Jesus decides, huh, I'll come in as the king riding on a donkey. That'll kind of stir the pot a little bit. Like this is flipping upside down their understanding, but very much in their world, that's a, that's a poke at what they do. When you look at Matthew 21, what is the very next story that comes after his entrance into Jerusalem? See, he's not only walking in making fun of some of the, the maybe the Roman existence, the, the, the political ways that they go about things. His next stop is at the temple. And what does he do in the temple? Some of you are looking at your Bibles right now. What does he do? I'll give you a bit of a gesture. Flipping tables. You know why he's flipping tables? Because they started changing money. When you think of changing money, if you've ever traveled internationally, sometimes when you arrive in other countries that have other currencies, you have to swap over your money so that you can then spend their, their type of money. Sometimes that's an easy thing, sometimes not so much. I have been in places before where the currency that was used in that country was not directly changeable. Like It was hard to change over to go straight from American dollars to the the. CFR was one of the countries I was in, right? And when you look at those, it's a difficult thing. Well, when you transfer that money over, it's not just that I'm going to give, you know, Pastor Jessica a dollar, and then Pastor Jessica is not going to give me exactly a dollar's worth in CFR. She's going to charge a premium for doing that, all right? In this setting, they were charging people to transfer their money into a temple-appropriate uh, type of currency, and they were charging them to do it essentially in what we would consider our front lobby of the church. Jesus walks in and they are selling approved animals for uh, sacrifice. They are charging people so that they can donate their money. It would be like us charging you a service fee for your offering this morning. Is that kind of ridiculous. He walks in and sees that going on. So Jesus doesn't just walk in and say things that are against like the Romans and the political system. He does things that are also against some of the the people that were more, if you were to say sides, like more his side, he's provoking both sides. This man's poking the bear. It doesn't matter. I guess he's an equal opportunity poker of bear. That makes sense? doesn't matter who you are. He's not afraid to. You go a little bit further into this, and he starts getting asked questions. Or, or better yet, I believe the next thing in line is when he curses a fig tree because it's not producing fruit as it should be. There's a bigger statement being made. You're supposed to be accomplishing things that God sent you here to accomplish, and you're not. And since you're not, He curses this fig tree to wither and die. Folks, this is still a continued a, a, a prodding, a poking. The chief priests at one point, and some of the teachers, ask Him a question. By whose authority is John the Baptist, excuse me, by whose authority are you doing these things? And by whose authority are you, all of these, these ways, you're kind of, whose authority, who gives you the, the authority to do these things? And his response is, by whose authority was John the Baptist baptizing? He doesn't even answer their question. He kind of answers the question with a question. And they find themselves in this kind of very frustrated place because if they admit that John the Baptist is baptizing by the authority of God, then all of a sudden, like, they've taken his side in one way or another. Yet if they, 
if they don't acknowledge that it's the God that he represents, then, man, if they stand against John the Baptist in their current setting, John the Baptist is kind of a big deal, and it's not going to go well for them politically. So he knows that he's kind of got them caught over this barrel, and they're not exactly sure how to respond. And then he immediately rolls, still in Matthew 21, immediately rolls into this story of the two sons, the parable of the two sons, in which they were invited or, or, or kind of uh, uh, invited to, to serve the father, and one son says, I will not serve the father, and then eventually he shows up and serves the father, and then they say, he says, well, there's a second son who says, I'm going to serve the father, but he never shows up. Which one of those two does better? And they say, well, the one who said he wasn't going to, but ended up serving is better. He ends up turning this story back around and says, the prostitutes and the tax collectors will make it to heaven before you. You understand, like, folks, you may have seen Jesus time and time again as the victim or, or the, the, the one who was being attacked but I'm here to tell you, when Jesus arrives on the scene, especially in Jerusalem, His behavior, His discussions, even His analogies are absolutely poking the bear of what's going on. I mean, the next story we talked about this past week is the parable of the wedding banquet. Those who were invited first, those holy people, the, the holy nation that was invited first, not only did they not come to the wedding, they attacked the messengers I sent to tell them that it was time. And then Jesus tells the stories. He can he goes, and so essentially God decides to invite everybody. We're, we're no longer going to, to pursue just this one covenant commitment. It is this symbol of now it's for everyone. Like, folks, he keeps telling the story that both the, those in the political arena and those in the, the holy arena of the Jews are both. Like, he's, he's not afraid to go after people. And then we finally arrive in our text this morning, Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. I'm not going to ask you to stand this morning because I want to do a couple of things as we look at it. I want you to look with me at that verse 15 into 16b, all right, or 16a, before they start quoting. So we're not we're gonna stop it, teacher. I want to ask you a question about verse 15 and 16, and I want to ask you to think for a moment, why is it odd that there are two separate groups of people who are in this story? Two separate groups of people are coming together. It says, then the Pharisees went out and laid their plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now think with me for just a moment. Jesus has been poking the bear for a while. Jesus has been calling into question the way these people live. And now you have these two groups of people. And look, if you don't read the New Testament a lot, if you find yourself like, I don't even remember what all these people do. I mean, you got Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and teachers of the law and the Herodians. And like, you get them confused about what all they do. Maybe there are some of you in here this morning that see, folks, when they show up coming after Jesus, this isn't one group of people. And when I say it isn't one group of people, I'm saying these, by their nature and what they do, are enemies. Pharisees are people who spend their existence not necessarily interpreting the law, the law of Moses, go back into the Pentateuch, not exactly interpreting that law, but they spend their existence making sure that the law is followed, fleshing out the law, making sure that people are doing what God, the God that we, we, we know is the one true God, that that God is being known, that God is being followed, and here are all the rules that we follow by. They go with the Herodians. Do you know what Herodians do? All honor glory for Herod. You have the political nature of Rome pairing with the Jewish religious leaders to come after Jesus. 
Folks, they don't like each other otherwise. They don't get along otherwise. They don't represent the same ideologies, really not even the same faith. If you, like, They're very, very different. And when these two groups of people have decided, folks, when I say who was the provocateur, who's the bear, those, Jesus has been, has been poking and prodding at the way they, that the existence of what's going on here. And it's not just one group of people, so much so that when you read what's about to happen, this is what's happening when the Pharisees and the Herodians decide they are ready to get rid of him. I'm going to tell you, anytime that the political and the religious both gang up on someone, you do not stand a very good chance. You understand? In, the, in history, like look back at the way history has worked. There's so many things, folks. You all have heard the story or the phrase in the past, those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. You've heard this, okay? Learn from what, folks, when, when people take on both the religious and the political, like, Jesus has been poking two very big bears, if you will, and now they are paired up to come after him, and this is the story that follows. I have to tell you, too, it's one of my absolute favorite stories. It's one that I, I wondered when I started reading it, how long has it been since we talked about this story? Uh, we haven't told the Matthew 22 text ever since I've been here, which is interesting to me. We've preached and we've talked about this from the Mark text. Uh, Mark also tells a story. And that story we talked about uh, 15 months ago, and the time before that was eight years ago. Uh, one of those stories I feel like th this is so core to who we are as the people of God. It's such a core element of what Jesus is trying to communicate uh, that it's a shame we haven't spent more time here. This needs to be one of those we visit quite often. Verse 16, I'll continue on. Uh, better yet, let's just start at 15 and read this story in its fullness. Then the Pharisees went out laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. God, we come before you this morning reading what is a very seemingly simple conversation back and forth, and yet, God, there is such malicious intent involved. And in the midst of it, Jesus responds in a way that sheds truth that we need to be reminded of, maybe even on a daily basis. So God, help us this morning to look back into what may be a familiar text and speak to us clearly again. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. It's always fun to come to church and talk about taxes, amen? Yeah. It's not even really tax season unless you're one of those who filed for an extension, and then I guess it was tax season because that was last week. When you think about taxes, though, it doesn't create a very good feeling in your mind. I'm going to tell you, of all the people who do not feel good about taxes, myself and your pastoral staff are the, in the highest bracket of taxed individuals in the country. 
So like, there's some things that like you may think preachers understand, preachers don't understand. Taxes, we understand, all right? Because we get taxes if we own the whole thing. How about that for being wild? The U.S. government looks at myself and the Bilers as if they own here in Church of the Nazarene and we're taxed accordingly. That is a wild thing. But it's part of, I'm just saying, we understand when it comes to the frustrations of the taxes. As a matter of fact, sometimes when you start talking about taxes, you see people in their seats start getting squirmy and they start getting worked up. How many of you know that your blood pressure raised a couple of points just because I started talking about taxes. At least the pastoral staff is like, yes, yes, we're, we're in that boat. It frustrates me to no end, the ridiculous percentages. Uh, so let's do a little something here a little bit to kind of take the edge off, all right? I love humor when it can be brought into these situations. So the first one I would say is, at least in my tax bracket, when the U.S. government is responsible for taking 30-some-odd percent, nearing 40 percent of your total income, why is it that God only wants 10%? It just seems a little bit unbalanced. You know what I mean? So like, it's a little off. I've got another one for you. A couple weeks after a man heard a sermon on Psalm 51, uh, it's about lies and deceit and those sorts of things, he felt so convicted that he woke up the next morning and he wrote a letter to the IRS and said, I need to inform you that I have cheated on my taxes and so enclosed you'll find $150 uh, because I didn't do my taxes right. P.S. If I still can't sleep tonight, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> I thought that was a good one. One more. Late one night, a mugger wearing a ski mask jumped in the path of a well-dressed man, stuck a gun to his ribs and said, give me your money. The man replied, very indignant, and he was a very affluent man, you can't do this. I'm a U.S. congressman. And the man replied, then fine, give me back my money. Now we're a little bit lighter mood, right? I mean, you understand a little bit of humor in these things. Taxes and money, always a sore subject. Let me add, this morning, because many of you are so far removed from the April tax date that everyone fears, not many had to deal with the October tax date, or maybe you've paid quarterlies here recently, but more than likely it's not quite as heavy on you as it may have been back in the spring. Let me tell you about the setting that Matthew is writing to when he writes this story. The people who were directly hearing it in the time that he wrote it. Now, the story had been told for some time, all right? But by the time Matthew writes the gospel that we read, we believe that Matthew, that this was written down somewhere around 80, in the, in the 80 to 90 AD, all right? Some of you who are better historians, you remember the facts and dates. What major thing happened in 70 AD that would change the way you look at the temple tax? I'll give you a hint. It's no longer there. In 70, the temple was destroyed. Put in context here what, what Matthew is telling the story. Now, this is not what Jesus, Jesus was talking into his era. When Matthew writes this story, you need to know that like in the time frame that he's writing it, it's about a decade after the temple had been torn down. And what makes it even more of a touchy subject when Matthew's writing this down and people are beginning to read it, it's beginning to get circulated. When the temple was destroyed, Rome came up with this great idea. Since you have been already accustomed to paying a temple tax and your temple has been destroyed, continue to pay the temple tax, but send it to Rome for Jupiter Capitolinus. How about that? You'll continue to pay the tax that you were going to pay, but it will not be to the same God nor even the same temple. Like, folks, when Matthew writes this, you need to know he's writing into a very, very difficult situation, one that is, has high Man, frustrations, uh, unrest, all. And when he writes this, 
He's telling the story of when Jesus sat being questioned, people trying to trick Him, people trying to, to, to trip Him up in His words. And you have to see this morning when they ask the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're ultimately asking Him about allegiance. Okay, They're asking Him about... And, and in the way they see this question being asked is that if He says to them, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then the man who they see as standing against all of that governmental situation, all that governmental system, they see Him in such a way, then it will be an act of rebellion against Himself. He will be denying following His own God because He's saying that, you know, yes, we should pay honor and tribute back to Caesar. So like He's going to lose His credibility in that but if he says that we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then we've got him. Legal grounds to jail him, bury him, and make him go away. They see Jesus caught in this trap of, of what's going... You know, he has no good way to respond. And then when Jesus... You read this. There are times when Jesus gets put in some very difficult situations. Do you remember when the woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus? You remember the story where Jesus has a, a very difficult situation and he kneels down in the sand for a moment, almost like he's collecting his thoughts and he's working through this kind of response? In this story, we don't read that he really worked through his response much. It's almost like it's a direct response. He doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to work it up. He probably doesn't walk away with a thought of like, I wish I would have said that differently. How many of you have left conversations and you look back an hour or two later and you're like, man, I really should have said this. That would have been better. You know, like, I wish I'd have said it this way. No, Jesus seems to respond to the point, and He does it so well. He responds back with something that seems simple, yet they leave amazed. Whose inscription? Whose image is on this? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give back to God what is God's. I was able to dig through some archives and find that there were actual photographers who were there, there were videographers who were there when Jesus was delivering the line. Please understand the humor in what I'm saying, okay? Some of you are like, there was, there was video back then? But I found actual footage. Actual, okay? found actual footage of when Jesus drops this bomb on them. And here it is. That's the commentators in biblical day, all right? Or it's Daniel Cormier, Joe Rogan, and John Aiken who are watching a UFC fight. But it's one of the two for sure, all right? It's that kind of a level of like, oh my goodness, Jesus has absolutely lowered the boom on these people. I think that's such a funny uh, meme, by the way. They make so many fun things out of that. That's from a UFC fight many, many years ago. But if you were sitting off to the side and you watched this take place and you saw the people who were coming back, the bear had been poked, and they're in retaliation coming back to get Jesus. They're coming back to catch him in his words. And he responds in something that some of you are still like, I don't understand why it's such a big deal. Like, why is what he said such a big deal? And it's because he responds in a way that crushes them both from the political and from even the, the spiritual and what we would call biblical now because of how we've canonized the Old Testament. Is it right to pay taxes back to Caesar? I don't know. Look at the coin. Whose image is on it? And they say, well, Caesar's, of course. Well, then it must be his. Give it back to him. They're saying, like, it's his. has his name on it. Give it back to him. That's a very passive way of answering. And yet his next statement is, but give to God what is God's. 
Those Pharisees are cut deep. You want to know why? Because the Pharisees know well the law. They know well the stories of how they were created. They know well the stories of Genesis going back. I want to ask you for a moment, if you haven't already plugged this in and you're already kind of putting this story together, when God, before He breathes breath into the dust making man, what words does He use to describe how He creates them? In His... So you give this silly coin back to Caesar because it's got His image on it. But you give back to God what is God's and what was created in His image. Folks, there are so many. When I say this is pivotal, when I say this is foundational to who we are, there are so many things we get wrapped up in arguing about, fussing about. I don't think that taxes get off this list, by the way. It's one of the things. Not that they're not good conversations to have, but I think there's a question of perspective when it comes to this. We find ourselves so many times getting lost and getting in arguments that are things that revolve around taxes, whose side we should be on in the, in the, in the Eastern conflict, uh, how people and characters or caricatures like Dustin Mulvaney or Hunter Biden should be handled or talked about how college football should be handled. I had a large conversation and argument yesterday about the new rules of pass interference. Amen? Mm. But I mean, really? You know, like, really, we get, we get so worked up in some areas about things that are so tangential. And folks, if we could just get back to what Jesus is saying here. Spend your time giving back to God what is God's, which is you. Understand? Giving your and recognizing I was created in the image of God, and I, I, we have to take this and, and we can break this down another time. But I was created to image God to the rest of creation. We don't read the Bible in such a way of like lording over, turning people to pillars of salt, and zapping folks. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay but to do so in one who is committed, who loves His people, who is a person of covenant, a person of principle. Like, to image God to the rest of creation. I'm not, I'm not so sure that if we didn't spend more time and better time working on imaging God to people around us, to, to recognizing that we were created in the image of God, to then act, and I would like this verbiage better, Christ-like to each other, that we would then respond and act in Christ-like to each other, that a lot of the tangents that we may find ourselves self-medicating and arguing about would drift into the so far distance that they wouldn't even be a discussion anymore. So this morning, I think we leave this place being reminded, look in the mirror and recognize you were created in the image of God to leave from this place and to continue in your life imaging God to people around you, being Christ-like and representing Christ to the people around you. God, we come before you this morning recognizing that you are one who has created us intricately. And though we may in one way or another take on different shape, form, look, at our core, you created us in Genesis in the image so God, it is our call to go back into this world and image the most Christ-like example that we can. Help us as we work to sharpen that. 
God, we recognize this morning that we may not be as far down the road as we wish that we were, but help us this next, next week to do it better. Remind us of whose image we were created in. God, we love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed. Have a great Sunday afternoon. Hello, this is Pastor Daniel Metters again. I hope this morning's message has both challenged your heart or maybe given you a word of encouragement. If you feel like you would like to reach out and maybe continue this conversation in any way, please feel free to email us at ecnradioresponse at gmail.com. We hope you are well and God bless.